Hello, and welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and each episode I interview Matt about the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. In this episode, Matt sort of turned the tables on me a little bit, and we discussed the secrets to successful PR for your business, and really why PR even matters in the first place. Now, I say turn the tables because I lead the PR activities at Royalty Exchange, and we've had a decent degree of success on the PR front over the years, so he winds up asking me quite a few questions himself for a change. Uh, What was particularly fun about this episode, for me anyway, was to hear Matt discuss the things that we did that surprised him in certain terms of tactics and how they worked and how they unfolded. But not only that, really was also surprising to hear is how his overall view of PR changed over the course of the years that we've worked together. I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, he viewed PR as sort of a affectation of some sort and really has come out of it seeing PR as a real business coup if done properly. So anyway, we dig into all these things and more. So uh, enjoy the episode. Here's Matt. Good morning, Matt. How are you today? I'm a little out of it today. I think you are too. I I think it's allergies for me though. For me, it's just old age, basically. (laughs) It's getting there for me too. It's definitely there. But uh, you've had a relatively fun week. I think you were a bit of a hero with your son. (laughs) Yeah. Anytime you can do something that impresses a your teenage son, you have to kind of like really live it up because it doesn't happen that often. There was a, a Forbes article that was written about Kanye and, you know, Forbes does these billionaire lists. Right. So there's been a lot of, a lot of controversy always is around Kanye West where Kanye, you know, never feels like he's fully appreciated for everything he does. And being on the billionaire list was one of those things that he was not feeling appreciated for. So they were basically doing some analysis of his net worth and they reported reach out to you and someone we'd worked with a little bit before, I had a series of conversations with him. And then I ended up getting a nice little quote within that Kanye piece. I did learn later, though, that Kanye was upset because he felt like the Forbes piece undervalued his um, net worth by a couple billion dollars still. Yeah, sure. No, it, was, it was still only it wanted $3 billion and it was only $1 billion, So, you know, that's the bar is going to continue to rise. But it was interesting. So they called, well, basically you. I mean, they got to you through us and whatnot, but they wanted to get a sense of your opinion on how to create like a multiple evaluation on his sneaker empire. And that the valuation of that is what led to his crushing the threshold. And, you know, I think it's interesting, like, were you surprised that the reporter would think of you? I mean, royalty exchange has nothing to do with sneakers, right? I'm just kind of wondering in your head, how you sort of reacted to that when it came in. And I could have seen you just totally say, no, I don't want to get into this, but you decided you want to talk to him. So well, I like Kanye, and my son is really into those shoes. He's got a few pairs, and he's attempting to uh, build a business around selling them online, not just uh, Yeezys, but others as well. I was just curious. I, wa- I really wanted to know what I would learn from him, from Zach, about you know, like how, what, how exactly is Kanye's deal structured? I'm not really sure. I thought it was an opportunity for me to learn, and I was just kind of curious. And the reporter has been, um, he's covered us a couple of times in the past. He's treated us very fairly. He's dealt with everything that we've seen him do in a really great way. So I felt like, not that he's done us a favor. I mean, we were just part of some stories he was writing, but I feel like he's been fair to us. And if there was a way that we could help, I think feel like we should try. And I was interested. So it was cool. So there are a lot of companies that would, you know, kind of kill to be in that position where a Forbes reporter would think of them as a source to help them with the story that they're working on, even if that story has got nothing to do with their company themselves. I mean, that doesn't happen a lot. And so thinking about this now, take the Wayback Machine a little bit to 
Three and a half years ago. Yeah, like with that was that something he ever would have expected to be suddenly someone that a Forbes reporter just calls out of blue. The whole Forbes thing, it really we had one little line in there. But I really believe that the reason that Kanye was rated as a billionaire was because of my input. Right. So I feel really great about it. It's not exactly a PR coup for us, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud that we have the relationship that was possible. And no, I never imagined that that would be the case because I actually didn't even, I, when you joined our team, I had no idea how PR worked. I didn't get it. I thought it was kind of like, a, there was part of me that thought it was a pay to play, you know, that if you were adverti- a big advertiser in Forbes, then maybe they would give you some, basically an advertorial, you know, writing about you, featuring you as a CEO or something like that. I thought it was a pay to play thing, or I thought that it was just, kind of dumb luck where the reporter's writing a story and you just happen to be part of it. I didn't really understand that it could be a strategic part of your business. That's part of your efforts to, I don't really like the term even marketing anymore because I really feel like good marketing is really just good communications and good PR is a natural extension of communicating well. So call it communications instead of marketing, but I didn't understand at all how it worked. I didn't understand there was a whole strategy there. And then when you know you came initially just to consult for us, I thought, you know, with your deep experience as a journalist, you know, and then working in the communication side at B-Port and Beats, it was just like, there's an opportunity for us to learn a lot about how it worked. I was still pretty cynical about it, not sure if it really worked at all. Well, let's be honest, we were more interested in working with me, given my history in the music business, than it was necessarily the communication side of it. We never actually talked about this. So I'm just assuming that that's the case. And I don't want to get off track, but we had no experience in the music business, but we launched a business that basically required us to work effectively with the music business. So yeah, I mean, the fact that you had the experience with Billboard, with Beatport and Beats was really compelling. But I remember one of the biggest things for me was we we're trying to build a company where people would love to work at. And I was like, we have to get people to know that this is a great place to work. And that's clearly not a direct response ad campaign that would work to do that. So it's like, how can we create a view of our company from the outside? that makes people want to work and join our team. And so that was a big part of it for me at first. And I saw that as a PR thing. That's where your communications, I guess, motivation started because the same thing holds true for people that want to work with you in terms of customers. And with Royalty Exchange being a two-sided marketplace, that's actually double, twofold. You've got to convince investors that this is something that they should, you know, well, I don't want to get into our business necessarily, but like, most companies don't think of it as a way of recruiting. Most companies think of PR as a way of getting customers and explaining their solution to the world and whatnot. That wasn't the tip of the spear for you necessarily, but it certainly became that way a little bit. Has your views on PR or, or and let's call it communications, because I actually hate the word PR too, to be completely honest with you. Has that evolved or changed since, you know, over the last three years since you've been, you know, more involved with it, you know, working together and some of the things that royalty exchange and yourself has, you know, accomplished? I mean, the Forbes article was just the latest. I still, get a chuckle out of watching you on the CNBC clip that we did around the M&M gambit way back when, and just watching you kind of sitting there going, what's about to happen? That's one of the few times in the last maybe 15 years I remember being nervous was you know doing that CNBC thing live. That was fun, but very nerve-wracking at the same time. So just to put people in the scene, you're, you're sitting in a what is basically a set. You're sitting in what looks like a library that's basically like a few bookshelves and a desk and a chair with a screen behind you show, as if you were sitting in front of a window with Denver traffic rolling by and it's all fake and everything around it is just like this big empty room and some guy in a camera and you're doing a remote interview from I think New York and the whole thing's delayed and you can see yourself on camera but it's like at least five seconds delayed off to the side. I mean, it's a bizarre experience for anybody. It is and the camera is like right in your face. It's surprising. You would expect it to be kind of set back but it's like, it's right there. 
it's like right there. You can kind of see yourself in the lens. And you can't see the people you're talking to. You just have this little earpiece that they're talking to you on. And it's very disorienting for people who've never done it before. For me, it was, it was tough. And I was, um, I'm happy with how it went. Ultimately, I think it went pretty well. But we also got pretty lucky that on the other side, the person interviewing me was very talented, very skilled at making you feel very comfortable and making it all work. Well, they do this 12 times in an hour. You know what I mean? Like, that's just what they do. But anyway, so I guess I could bring all this stuff up because you've had some, what can be considered some really big successes on the communication side, you know, a lot of awareness and some really large platforms and whatnot. And so, of course, it helped, I think. But in terms of just how we got there, for other companies that wish they can be in the same situation, I guess, what are some of the steps that you think you took that resulted in those things happening? The funniest part about this is that you're asking me the question when you're actually the orchestra <laughs> conductor that made all this happen. My, my view on PR or communications changed substantially because I got to see how it actually worked over time. And I think that the, one of the biggest things that you have to understand with it, I think that communications, getting the press to cover you, your business, and what you're doing can be a huge asset for your business. It can be incredibly valuable. But number one, you have to have a very long view for it. It's not something that's going to happen you know, within the first couple of months, you're not going to hire a PR firm and then all of a sudden, you know, them rush you onto a CNBC set or get coverage in the FT or something like that. It doesn't work like that. And I'll talk about one of the reasons why I think that is in a minute, but you have to have a very long view for it. And essentially, it's just like any of the entrepreneurs listening, you know, that, you know, as soon as you hit some threshold of success, people are like, you're an overnight success. That's the way it looks to the outside. But you know you're a 10-year overnight success. You've been working on it for a decade, and now finally, you know, people recognize it as successful. They don't understand what happened before that. And I think the same is true of PR. And I think that it's like, it might not be 10 years, but it's a focused effort over a period of time to build up the credibility that would make possible big breakthrough stories. And I think that's the key. You kind of have to step up. One of the biggest things for any of these major outlets, from my perspective, was that if you are an unknown entity to the press, generally, you're a big risk because they might have it wrong about you. So the first time you get covered, it's probably not going to be by the FT if you're you know, in business for finance or the Wall Street Journal. Instead, it's going to be something else first. And I think that if you don't get those kind of step in smaller coverage first and you don't get a body of work out there essentially where you've been covered by smaller outlets, it's very difficult for the larger outlets to come to you and go, and embrace you because it just seems like it's there could be lots of uh, skeletons in your closet perhaps that they just aren't aware of right so what you're referring to are like what i would call sort of the trades or the more i guess vertical specific blogs that are out there that are likely going to be the ones who are going to first be interested in what you're doing because they follow whatever space that you operate in far more closely and in far greater detail and granularity and they tend to be the first sniff test so to speak on what it is that you're doing like someone with a larger brand like a mainstream media outlet, kind of look to those other ones as a sort of social proof almost, right? Like, is this something that other reporters who are close to that space care about? And as long as there's no big, crazy expose on those things, okay, then I feel more and more comfortable putting people on. It's, those smaller outlets are, are the breadcrumbs leading to the bigger ones, but they're also in and of themselves incredibly useful. So, Right. Yeah. And I think people discount it. People want to go, they well, you know, I, I really want Good Morning America to cover this story, and or I really want the Wall Street Journal to cover it or something like that. And I think it's unreasonable when you start out to look for something like that. And, and actually, it probably won't be that effective for you. Like the CNBC was a coverage, for instance, for us was fun and interesting. And it was a good like morale booster for the company. Like we were all proud of it. But as far as like the dent it might have made in our 
getting through to more customers, it's not nearly as effective as some of the pieces that we've had run or one of the pieces that Forbes did where we were covered very extensively. That piece does more for us because it's still there. When you're searching for us, you still find it. It's going to be around for a long time. When other news outlets are Googling us, they find that article. It's just more valuable to us than certainly the CNBC one was, even though that one is more flashy. And the same can be true of the trades, as you say. Right now, we have a a catalog on our platform that's up for auction, and it's a heavy metal band called Slipknot. You may or may not know them. That's not really important. The important thing is, is that to maybe the vast majority of the world, it doesn't matter. Forbes certainly isn't preoccupied with it, neither is CNBC or the Wall Street Journal. However, there are metal fans, people who really love metal and who are super diehard. And there are little niche blogs and news sites that cover this area. They picked up coverage of this. And we have had more articles written and spread about this than we have had on any single thing in the last year. Oh, easily. Yeah. You know, it's not something we would have sat down and go, oh boy, if we could get them to cover it, it'd be really good for us. And yet it's been for new registrations on our site, new users, it's been our best month in a long time because that there's a combination of other things. We were also in Rolling Stone. We were also in Billboard. We also had that little Forbes mention all within the last few weeks. But still, so those niche sites can be really, really, really useful. And I think that people often look beyond those and they're, they're thinking instead of the mainstream publications. Right. And what happens is things tend to snowball a little bit. I guess one thing people don't always realize is that an older way of doing PR would be to say, you put together a press release and you blast off this press release and you see who picks it up. And that's sort of an older model, I feel. Whereas if you target one influential, even if it is niche blog and they pick it up, then anyone that sort of follows the lead on that, they'll pick it up then subsequently. And then once the volume of that gets to a certain part, certain size, then the mainstream might actually jump in and pick it up. And it's weird. And it's all can be done through one email, not a hundred. Right. Okay. So let's, so if you could put your reporter hat on, I have a business and I'm trying to basically pitch a story about my business or product or product launch or something that we're doing. And I come to you, what would I, of course, the subject matter and what you're writing for really makes a difference, of course. But let's just assume, you know, that I have this objective that I'm trying to get a story written. You know, you have in your head, a whole bunch of set of objectives and deadlines and priorities that really dominate the choices that you make as a reporter about what you write about. What are those? What are your concerns? If I want you to write about me, I have to solve a problem you have. So I was a reporter for many years before I I went into communications or decided communications anyway. So to kind of give you the sense of what most reporters are thinking of, you know, one, whatever email you're about to send them, you need to understand that that's going to be one of probably a dozen they're going to get that day not just that week, but likely that day. Okay. There's a ton, there's a, there's a ton of companies out there. They're all looking for attention. So they're just filtering. You need to understand the pool you're swimming in a little bit first, right? Then two, you got to understand that it's become a business where I only have so much time in a day to write stories and I have to pick which ones I'm going to write and which one is going to likely get the most attention. And it's like clicks and page views and all this kind of thing right now. That's part of it. And it also has to be something that's going to be of interest to my readership. So a lot of PR firms might say, oh, we have these great relations with this reporter or that reporter. I will say that as a reporter that had those relationships with those PR firms, those relationships meant next to nothing. The only relationship that mattered to me was the one with my readers. So you had to give me something that's how is this going to serve the audience that looks to me for something. Now, that was how I took it then. Again, a lot of it's just clicks and page views now, right? What I'd say first is that if you're going to contact a reporter, don't give them news. Give me a story. And that speaks to what you were saying in terms of solving a problem for me. My problem is I need a story. 
Now, your news might be part of that story, but I'm looking for a story. So that's a short way of answering that question. And I think what- We're also working on a deadline. Yeah, working on a deadline. Well, yeah, but the deadline's always moving around. Like in a web publishing environment, you're just turning things around constantly. You know, there might be deadlines for the print edition, like very specific deadlines. And those deadlines are usually well in advance of when they actually appear in print. There's a much broader lag time. I mean, you want to talk about that Forbes story. I mean, how many months in advance were you working on that before it actually appeared in print, right? Like that was like at least two months, I think. So there's that. But like in a web environment, it's just that day. It's quick. It's fast. It's boom, boom. But what I'm trying to say is that whatever you're doing, whenever you reach out to the reporter, if it's the first time you're reaching out to them, unless it's really, really, according to the Hoyle, significant news, it's probably not going to hit. You got to chum the waters a little bit. You got to send information about what you're doing on a regular basis. It has to be real, but don't expect coverage right away. And as a reporter, I used to take like these press releases or pitches, or whatever, the ones that seemed interesting, but I couldn't get to right away, I'd save them. And if I got from other companies sort of in the same, what I would generally loosely put into a bucket of themes, I would save it all. And then one of the things I had to do when I was at Billboard, for instance, was write a weekly column. And sometimes I'm like, ah, what am I writing this week? And I go to my files. Okay, what do I have a bucket of? What folder has six different pitches or themes from, you know, maybe four different companies that together I can create an angle out of and create a column? Then I'll go back to that. Some of those might have been sitting there for six months, but I'm finally going to come back to you. So you got to think of it in that sense. If you're not getting anything, don't stop. Right. It's not a one-time thing. It's a relationship thing. And I think this definitely applies to stuff outside of working with the press. I mean, if I'm trying to get the attention of or get on the radar of somebody, my approach would be direct, but subtle enough that it's not going to ruin my future chance of success with them. So for instance, one of the things I know that you always do in advance of any time we speak with anyone from the press is that you go and you read a half a dozen or more of their stories that they've written. You understand how they're thinking about the world. You understand, you know, everyone has maybe a, a beat that they're working on, you know, a specific area, but people kind of twist that beat in a little different way. You know, they like add their own little part to it, their, their own little perspective by which they view things. So you can know kind of in advance of contacting them, reaching out or before any interview or something, you kind of know like the way that they're looking at the world and being able to like reference that you've read their past work, reference that you understand the stuff that they've covered in the past, and you're reaching out to them because you think this might be of interest to them based upon this other story that they covered six months ago. It just lands totally differently than just sending them stuff out of the blue, right? Right. And that's something that you do, but not just before you have an interview with them, but you do that before you even pitch them. So I guess what I've always said is that if you really want to dial it all the way back, Before you do anything, you want to know what you want to say and you want to listen for opportunities to say it. Okay. Yeah. We can get into know what you want to say in a second, but in terms of listening, you know who your customer is, right? Where does your customer live online? What do they read? You have to do some work there. And then you follow this outlets that your customers are following and reading. In what publications are your customers reading about your competitors, for instance? And then read those things. I used to use an RSS feeder. I've been a little less on top of it lately. You know, even if it's just reading the headlines, you have to read every story, but just be aware of what are people talking about. And that helps. And then you kind of have a sense of when you're talking, you're, you got to understand what when you're talking about yourself, you're not talking in a vacuum, you're talking in a very loud space. And you got to understand what, how is what you're saying resonating with what all the other stuff that people are reading before they get to the story about you, if they even read that story. So that's really, 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 really important. So many companies are so understandably focused on what they're doing in their day to day and their Kool-Aid and everything else. You got to have at least someone at your company who's part of their brain is out in the world, in the real world, and being able to give you a really harsh feedback as to, is this going to resonate or is this not? Something that you're doing that you just take for granted, 
suddenly because of some story that's written about something else entirely is now a topic of news, even though it's not news for you. That's the way you got to think about these things. When you originally joined our team, a couple of people, they were like, why? I mean, seems a little early. It seems like, do we really need this? How are we going to justify the expense of you know somebody who's just focused on these things? And you know, my argument was, I didn't see how you'd ever make progress of changing the way that you are seen by the outside world unless you had somebody, a professional who was devoted to that full time. And, you know, like I said, my initial concern was I wanted to be able to recruit good people in the Denver area. So I wanted to be covered in the Denver area. We're a good company. And I wanted... Ironically, it's still been the hardest thing that we've had. (laughs) It took almost three years before we finally got the Denver Post covers. We'd been in the FT, Rolling Stone. We'd been everywhere. Wall Street Journal, CNBC. But no, Denver Post, like, wouldn't give us the time of day. You know, there were some very small local, like, trade publications in for hiring technology people in Colorado. We got some coverage in those, and some of it was because we paid, then they did editorial also, you know, because we did bought ads, and they also did editorial. So we did do some pay-to-play in the, book in the very beginning. Right. But one of them was, like, just give you an example of what I was just talking about, the built-in network. They have one in, in many major cities. It's, like, built-in, insert city here. So we had built in Denver and built in Colorado, and I would be looking at it on a regular basis. And I saw that they would create these little stories saying, you know, five ways these startups celebrate Friday happy hours, or five ways this company goes outside and whatever. So the holidays were coming up. You would have that uh, holiday party that you would donated to Toys for Tom's, the charity event. Charity event, yeah. I threw that in there with a few pictures. Say, hey, if you're doing a roundup, this is what we do. Boom. Two weeks later, there it is. We didn't wait to be asked. I knew that they were going to write that story. And I knew that we did something, so it took 10 minutes to throw it out there. So we knew the type of work that they were doing, and we spoon-fed them something that's easy for them to then write. Yeah. And you know, if it's right within what they're already doing, and then it was super easy. And those things over time compound, because certainly the view of our company within the local labor market changed dramatically over the last few years because of all that. So. Right. And it helps. Another example of that was actually more recently. You mentioned the Rolling Stone piece. This wasn't a pitch. Somehow, a reporter from Rolling Stone contacted one of our other employees who thankfully forwarded that person over to me. And the reporter was writing a story about other companies like ours that was able to be a source of funding for artists who needed funding right now, basically. And so here's the thing. This is so important. Like if someone does contact you, that you don't want to just be so happy that you just start answering questions, right? Before you answer questions, you need to start asking questions. What is the story you're working on? Who else are you talking to? And what is your deadline? Those are the three questions at the very least you should ask every reporter before you say a word in response to anything. And that gives you the context, right? So in this case, I asked him, what are you working on? Explains. Who are you talking to? He explains who the other companies are, our competitors, essentially, right? We were able to craft a response that not only explained what we do, but did so in a way, basically a one or two sentence quote that differentiated us from the others so that it would stand out more. And this was a reporter who was content with receiving information via email. So we were able to pretty much just write the description and the quote and everything and send it to them via email. And with a few slight changes, it was basically cut and paste and there wasn't the story. So you basically, that's literally spoon feeding it. But the important thing, I think the big theme I have with this is that you have to understand what the people whose job it is to write stories, to tell stories about businesses, what exactly they're trying to accomplish. And you have to be, help them solve their problem. And then by helping them solve their problem, you'll find opportunities for you to get coverage of your own company. That's what it's really about. The key to PR is always, I mean, you see, read all these little um, startup blogs, how to get press without a PR firm and all this other stuff. 
And this is all true, right? You do want to be able to explain very clearly and consistently what it is that you do and everything else. But if all you're doing is finding more efficient ways to describe what you do or to tell your story, you're missing most of it. The key to PR is listening, not talking, right? Listening better will get you better PR or communications than learning how to talk better. Because if what you're saying isn't fitting into the puzzle of coverage that's out there, then you're just that lone jigsaw piece looking for a hole to fill. You see what I'm saying? Even if you stand out as interesting to reporters that you reach out about these stories, they don't know where to put you. They don't have the time or energy to try and figure out how they can make what you're giving them work. It's either going to work within what they're doing or not. And they just move on to something else because there's plenty out there to write about. I still make this mistake today. It's just natural. I've got a friend at one publication who I used to work with. This is someone who I have a personal relationship with. I could call and ask about things outside of, you know, like the kind of relation with a reporter that most people wouldn't have, right? Even then, if I'm talking about something that we're doing, he'll just be like, dude, it sounds really interesting, but I got like 20 stories right now. You got to listen to what's out there. You got to understand what is currently being written about and insert yourself into those things. That's really the way to go. And the ultimate, I mean, for me personally, the, the best example of that was this coverage in Forbes about Kanye, because that wasn't about us. We'd built a relationship with him over time, of course, by trying to listen to what he's covering and then trying to complement what his efforts and be responsive and all that to him. But we could never jam anything down anyone's throat anyway. It just wouldn't work. We didn't try it, but it wouldn't work anyway. So we were just there in a cooperative relationship. But then ultimately, when he reaches out and he has a question that has no relation to us, honestly, if he's reaching out to us asking about this, he's probably to some degree grasping at straws. You know what I mean? He's like, I don't really know where to go with this. But maybe these guys might, maybe called lots of other people, but he wasn't making progress enough. So he felt like for the first time, really reaching out to us and asking about something that he'd never asked about before, you know, the kind of types of questions that weren't, didn't directly relate to us. The thing is that kind of comes down to having a point of view as a company to start with. If you have a clear point of view as a company and you stick with that point of view, and it's something that you communicate clearly and consistently, then as they're working on other stories that you don't know about where that point of view is needed, they know where to go. That's a good point. And the point of view that we have, one of them, is this idea of placing a multiple on past earnings as a way of evaluating future potential from a royalty standpoint. It's real simple. And that intellectual property is fundamentally undervalued in today's market. Right. Thank you. Exactly. So that's a point of view that we've told many, many times. The story that he was working on had nothing to do with any of the kind of intellectual property we work with, but that point of view still stands. It's portable. And so that's why you want to have that developed first. Like you have a strong foundation of what is your company's point of view? What is the things that you can be an authority to speak to? And then allow the reporter to take advantage of that in any ways that makes fit. To use an analogy, what I like to say is that your story, quote unquote, your company's story is like a room. And that room can have many doors. And what you need to do is listen to what's going on out there or be adaptable to what's going on outside of that room to allow the doors into that room to appear as the person coming in needs it, not make them line up in front of the door that you create. Is that too obscure of a reference? <laughs> no, no. I think it makes great sense. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that, are there businesses that shouldn't pursue PR or communications as a strategy to grow their business or to increase their employee pool or whatever? Are there businesses that are inappropriate for it? Probably. I mean, you have to really think about, you know, is what you do something that is going to be of interest to any kind of even subset. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a short stint at a PR firm way, 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 way back in the day. I was at a trade firm. I moved. I got a job at a PR company. It lasted six months. It was terrible. I went back to being a reporter again. But while I was at this PR company, I had a meeting 
with a potential client. This is a company that sold, and I'm dating myself heavily here, that sold prepaid calling cards, international long distance calling cards to immigrant communities in Los Angeles. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell do you need a PR firm for? There's maybe one story to tell there, maybe two. And maybe I'm, maybe, maybe there's a bunch of PR pros out there that'll tell me why I'm an idiot, but I couldn't sell them. I'm like, I don't know what we can do for you, man. Like you sell long distance prepaid calling cards to people who need to phone their families back in other countries. Sure, there might, there might be a story here and there, but you, you don't hire a PR firm for that. Maybe they were doing it because they, you know, those companies screw people. It's so outrageous what the fees were for those. Especially if you're marketing to that community, you almost wonder if they were looking trying to get some goodwill cover. Yeah, and I knew nothing about that business. But what I'm saying is that that's not exactly, there's not a whole lot of story. I mean, you know, yeah, sure, you could probably find some interesting story about some family, like a little human interest thing, but it's, that's a stretch, man. I mean, if you're too far down in the weeds on things that you may not really, if you're a small company, you really need it. So there's bigger companies that are definitely down on the weeds on things. They're like chip semiconductor manufacturers and things like that, but they're so large that yeah, they need PR only from a business, almost from like a stock standpoint. But yeah, in certain cases that you know, could you benefit from it? Sure. Is it worth the investment? Uh, depending on the investment, probably not. Yeah. Okay. So I was thinking that, especially if you're a smaller business, though, that in a lot of cases there probably is a way that you can make your business more story worthy. If you want to differentiate your product in the marketplace at all. In order to be as successful as a business, you have to differentiate your product in the marketplace anyway. There's some relationship, I think, between that and your ability to be successful as PR in PR. So like, let me give you an example. So you know, I've been, I'm pursuing, I haven't committed totally a meat business yet. And this meat business, fundamentally, it's local meat delivered to your door. So it's a, you know Colorado-raised beef and simple supply chain delivered to your door. If you don't call this company Meatly, I'm going to be severely disappointed. Meatly should be Meatly, shouldn't <laughs> The thing is, is that this is not a new type of business. I mean, there's a company called Omaha Steaks that's been out for like 30 years that basically has, you know, pretty high quality meat delivered to your door. You know, it's not expensive. This isn't new. It's not a new idea. It's just that it's uh, local. Like that's the fundamental difference. But the, the angle that we would use to sell it is the same thing that I think that could potentially make it interesting for PR. I want to get your thoughts on this approach. And then I also if you can't think of a way to differentiate your product in the mind of your customers, there's no way you're going to make it differentiate in a mind where potential PR could be interested in it. With the meat business, it's all about simplicity of supply chain. It's high quality food, but you can get high quality food in lots of places, but it's high quality local food delivered to your door, but it's a simple supply chain with guaranteed delivery of food, guaranteed access to it. That's the only real differentiation. And, and when you have McDonald's CEO on, on you know, CNBC yesterday, I heard him say, they asked him about the food supply chain and they asked him if he was concerned about it. And he said, well, while we haven't had any problems yet, we are very concerned about it. We are monitoring it literally every hour. When you have somebody say an environment where you have a, where that is like in the zeitgeist positioning the business, which is a pretty simple, and you might actually already have a meat, local meat delivery business, but like the feature of your, of your local meat delivery business, the thing that's most beneficial to customers is newsworthy today in that it has a very simple supply chain. So it's almost like finding the story that cuts through the noise based upon what's happening in the world. All right. This is perfect. You're basically hitting the two things that I was saying to begin with, right? Know what you want to say and listen for opportunities to say it. We talked a little bit about listening for opportunities to say it, right? Let's talk really quickly about know what you want to say. And that comes down to what's the first thing I did when I came to Royalty Exchange? You did this giant quadrant thing with all of our, <laughs> not quadrant, but this whole spreadsheet with all of our, to- 
talking points, right? It's a messaging matrix. So what you do is you sit down and you, and you kind of talk through about what is it you do and who your customer is and how do you serve them. And, you, and it, it's a very long kind of convoluted process to say all these things that you're saying. And then you slowly start to distill these things into what I would like to think of as three to five key messages that you want to make no matter what. Depending on how complicated your business is, you can segment those by audience, right? Like with us, we have investors and sellers, so we need to kind of switch the messaging to be somewhat different. So I won't get into all that. But basically, here's three to five core benefits of your business that you want to proactively communicate. In any opportunity that you have to talk about yourself, you want to be able to deliver at least one, probably not all, of those messages, right? So you do that first. You do that before you even do anything. That's the very first thing you do. What are those key messages? What are those key differentiation points? This is a process that I love doing. It's a pain in the ass. I say on the other side of it, it feels tedious at first, but it's so foundational to being able to have the organization understand what the hell you're doing and be able to communicate that to the outside world. Right. So once you have those things, then it all becomes really simple. Here's the three to five things that I want to be able to say. And then you do the other part, which is the keeping an eye, listening to the outside world. And then all you're doing is connecting something that's out happening external to you to one of these three to five things. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, it's a guaranteed supply chain. It's uh, there's probably some quality beef component in there. You've probably got some maybe an environmental sort of grass fed, you know, low carbon footprint. If not, it should be. And then you have those five things. And then like right now with the supply chain issues coming up, boom, that's the message of today. And you ring that bell. But that's not going to be, I hope, forever. So two years from now, you ring the low carbon footprint bell. If that becomes a thing. That's what I'm talking about. This rancher that I'm looking to partner with on this, you know, he has been raising this beef. It's all grass-fed, you know, pasture-raised Colorado beef and selling it at farmer's markets for the last five years or so. This whole idea of this simple supply chain, from his perspective, wasn't even seen as a strategic benefit. It wasn't seen as something that differentiated his product and, you know, from anyone else that was out there. You know, it was more just like the quality beef and that, you know, maybe you liked it because he was local. Two years ago, he would not have put that as one of his three to five key messages. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Trying to look at your business objectively and understand some hidden strengths that you might have that might be really appropriate to connect with the current zeitgeist, you know? So that's a good point. And that does put itself more into that listening category where if you have an RSS feed that you're looking at news stories and one of the key items you have is like beef. (laughs) It is now, by the way. As a beef company, it sure as hell should be. And then you just see what are stories being written about, you know, beef or, you know, what are the organizations, you know, are you following the National Cattlemen's Association newsfeed or something? I don't know. I'm, I haven't followed this. I'm making this stuff up. You would want to be following the threats. I'd be following news about people eating less beef and what are their reasons for doing so and then finding stories to counteract those things. Oh, what? You eat less beef because of, a, of a, the environmental effects? Well, look, here's a lower carbon foot. Again, it goes back to that listening thing. I do want to stress having that matrix does help. And that matrix is not just a one and done thing that evolves. So let's say you were with this company two years ago and you had that messaging matrix and you had those three to five message points. And now something life-changing like a global pandemic comes in. Yeah, that's a good time to kind of revisit your matrix and see if maybe you want to update it a little bit. I don't care if you're a beef company or a music company. You know what I'm saying? I agree. Head toward wrapping this up. The things that I have been really great for our company in PR that I didn't understand early on were that it can be a good strategy over the long term, as long as you have a long view focus, to be able to drive new customers to your platform, or to your product or service. It also can be really helpful in increasing the pool of candidates that you get to interview, to recruit as employees. 
And it also has this really positive effect internally with your team, where when people see us, when our organization is covered in the press, it increases sort of the esprit de corps, if you will, about the business. Like people feel better about the business. I mean, that recognition from the outside that we're doing good work is helpful. Yeah. It makes them feel like they're doing something. Right. So I think so. there's a lot of benefits that come from it. And I think that most businesses, most entrepreneurs should be looking for ways to use it, to get into it, because I do think that it gives you the leverage you get from it is so much greater than you might get from a really effective paid advertising campaign, for instance, because this has a compounding effect. The more of it you get, the more of it you're likely to get in the future. And so I think it's, it's a really important long-term play. And at its root, you said that the two keys are that you have to know what messages you're communicating and you have this messaging matrix you use to sort of develop that. And then you have to be listening to what's being talked about outside and look for ways to plug your message into that. That's the fundamental key to it, right? And just have a lot of patience, which is incredibly ironic coming from me. You have zero control over this and you got to be comfortable with that, both yourself as well as your interaction with the poor, you know, schmoes you got out there doing it for you, like me. We've done things and had it fall like a lead balloon and been like, why didn't that work? And I've always appreciated the fact that you weren't one of those CEOs that like screamed at you and said, you don't have the right relationships. And, you know, because those people are there and I've dealt with them and they suck. You just got to understand it's an art, not a science. I think with all things, you got to earn the right to succeed in something. So we have to earn the right to be covered in the press, which means we have to be solving a problem that they have. We have to offer information or insights that are useful to their readers. Our agenda will not get pushed through unless it also jives with their agenda, the reader agenda, the writer agenda, and so forth. And so we have to focus on that in order to be successful. And so when it doesn't work, I mean, what can you do? One of the last thing I want to talk about, uh, actually there's two more things. Your thoughts on PR firms, if it's worth having one, not worth having one, when the decision is yes or no, and which PR firms, you know, I wasted money on PR firms before and just like, how to know that for that not to happen, um, if you can. And then this, the second thing is something I learned from you is that there are sometimes the best PR efforts are making sure a story is not written. Right. There's a story that's being written that doesn't get written. We had one, one experience with that that was one of the best calls I, I had with anyone in the press, somebody I tremendously respect as a reader of his. And well, let's start with that. That was a Wall Street Journal columnist. We didn't know what they were writing but he wanted to ask us questions about what we were doing. And so we took the call. The story was still written, but it didn't include us, which was good because the story was about, here's things that you don't want to be chasing with your money in times of low yield, something like that. Yes. And it was kind of like pointing at the things you don't want to get involved with. And we weren't mentions in that. And it, had we not talked to that reporter, it's possible we might have. And fortunately, this was an old school reporter who did things like actually I don't know, talk to companies before they spout it off about them as opposed to just making assumptions, which many, many still do today. So we had the opportunity to have that conversation. But I think the lesson there is that I would be curious, had you known that that was the story the reporter was going to write, would you still have taken the call? I mean, I would have been nervous because I have a lot of respect for the reporter. He was writing a derogatory story, a warning story to investors and knowing that he was writing that story and he, was, and he wanted to talk to us about it. I was worried. Yeah. A lot of companies would just refuse to participate. And I always think that's a mistake. You got to engage. You have to at least try to engage. And it's for two reasons. One, there always is the opportunity to change someone's mind if they're being truly open-minded. And two, I always like to tell people, how many times have you been reading a story where the reporter wrote something that you completely and totally disagreed with and thought, well, that person's an idiot. So the person that you're talking to, 
who's writing a story about your company might be that person. And remember, you're not just talking to the reporter, you're talking to that reporter's readers. So if they write something about you, as long as it's accurate, even if it's presented in a bad light, as long as it's accurate, someone might, who's reading that story might feel that the reporter's wrong and you're right and you still benefit from it. That's a fine line and I get the concerns there, but I still think it's always worth engaging, at least trying to get your point of view across. And as long as you have that core foundational messaging in place, you're in a better place for success with that. We knew what we were going to say. We didn't know what he was going to write. We didn't know he was writing something positive or negative, but our goal was just to make sure that he understood what we did. Right. And that's all we were doing. So we didn't talk him out of anything. All we did was we worked to help him understand what we did. We answered his questions. We tried to share our thinking. And then by doing that, he excluded us from this story about some bad investments. Yeah. Don't try to court the reporter. Don't try to like woo them. Almost ignore them. Almost treat them badly to a certain extent. I hate to say it like that, but it's like when I was a reporter, if I was challenging a company and like really coming at it from a certain point of view, the ones that were trying to like, who showed nervousness and trying to like dissuade me from that through more like an appeal to personality as opposed to details, it just reinforced me thinking that I was on the right track. Those that, that said, dude, that's not even close and like broke it down. Even if I didn't agree with them, at least somewhere in the back of my head, I was questioning where I was coming from it and I would maybe reevaluate. And again, I come from a journalism world where you actually didn't try to force your point. <laughs> you do journalism. Yeah. But that's true. There's a lot of analogies here that I'm not going to get into, but like you got to stick to your guns and you got to be clear about it. And you got to not worry about if someone's going to be foolish and they're going to be foolish and you can't change that. Don't kiss their butt in the same time. The goal is to communicate, period. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to communicate. It's not trying to get an outcome. It's trying to just communicate. The odds of you being included in a story in the future go up when your communication adds to the, the conversation that's already happening. So when you're just supplementing the conversation that's already there rather than trying to shift it, then you're more likely to be covered, but ultimately you're only trying to communicate. And one last little point on that is that, remember, even if the bad outcome comes, right? Someone writes the hit piece and it makes you look bad, but you've got your messages across in that. Some other reporter from another publication might read it, think, well, that reporter screwed up. And then because reporter publications compete with each other. So then now there's an opportunity for another company to correct. You don't want bad information out there, but like you give another outlet a chance to write the good story on you, not just because they think what you're doing is good, but because they want to be the one that write the contrary piece of the one that just... Now that swings both ways. You have the good piece about you, someone else is going to write the hit piece. This is going to happen. Just know that it's going to happen and use it to your advantage. So let's talk about PR firms. Success with a PR firm depends on two things. It's not just finding the right one, but let's talk about that first. Like anything else, you want to know why do you want a PR firm? What are you trying to achieve with it? Make sure that's very simple, A, B, C. And then when you solicit the PR firms, you say, I'm trying to achieve A, B, and C. And then you have that conversation with them. You have to give them direction. A PR firm without direction, like specific direction, will likely be a waste of money. And that's not necessarily the fault of the PR firm. I don't feel it's the PR firm's job to tell you the direction. I think it's your job to give the PR firm the direction. They're like an employee. They have a job. They have certain measurements against which that job's performance will be measured. That's on you to control. So you need someone who's using them for what they need to be used for, who's going to keep them on track and hold them accountable. If you hire a PR firm to be your internal communications person, nine times out of 10, it's not going to work. I don't care who you hire. The big... um thing that I've gotten out of my foray into the PR stuff is that as I've worked with lots of PR firms, 
before that didn't work. And it, you know, these were firms that had lots of success. So if you looked at their clients, you looked at you know the media where they were covered, and you know you'd see lots of success there. And yet we were not succeeding. And I think part of it goes back to the the things you already mentioned. But I think the other part is that we weren't using them properly. And I think we have done a good job with using PR firms here because basically we had you manage, you know, taking responsibility over the communications and making sure that the PR firm could be utilized. We could leverage the things that they're good at and not have to succumb to the things that they aren't good at. Exactly. I mean, they've got a ton of clients. And if you're asking them to come up with your strategy, that's not going to work. Like as a consultant, I would do that just because that's a different role. Like I was an individual and I pitched myself on the guy that was going to come in and help you with your strategy. And in some cases, I was actually a consultant managing the PR firm, which was a really weird situation. But anyway, point is hiring the PR firm really depends on what it is you're trying to do. And you just need to have someone who's going to be responsible for that relationship and the outcome internally. You can hire the biggest PR firm in the world. It's not going to do any good without someone managing them. I guess that's the last thought. What are the few keys, uh, defining the objectives with them, A, B, and C, this is what we're trying to do. What are the other things that, the things that you make the relationship work? We're talking with more startups here. So, I mean, you, you want to find one that's got some proven history within the trade space in which you operate. I prefer a smaller boutique targeted firm than a large sort of all things, everything's firm. I mean, if you're such a big company that you're a mainstream consumer brand, that's a whole other conversation that I don't know we need to get into right now. I guess trying to figure out who they are is the hard part. One of the things you could do is research your competitors' press releases and see who's been putting them out. Now, PR firms can't take companies that are competitive with others, but they also churn a lot. So they might have formerly had a competitor as a client and now they can work for you. So that's one way of doing it. So early on, I said, know who your customer is and where their customer lives. A PR firm can help with that. Here are the, you can define to them the space in which you operate. They should be telling you, okay, here are the outlets that operate in that space. They should know that. If you don't, they should know. And then they should have the channels to communicate with them. I'm not going to say relationships. They should have the channels to reach those people. They know which reporter covers which area and how to get a hold of that reporter. That's a big key right there. But you need to tell them who you want to reach first, and they should be able to tell you, well, here are the outlets that we should look for. And test them, like, you know, narrow it down to a three, tell them who it is. And even if you know the answer, ask them and see if they give back the correct one as a, as a test. That would be the biggest one is making sure they understand the outlets that can reach your audience. And if you have relationships with any reporters, ask them, what PR firms do you like working with? That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. And that's actually how we found ours, by the way. I talked to the editors that I used to work with at Billboard and said, who's someone that can handle both? That's really good at balancing sort of the artist press with the business press. I knew a few myself, but the one that my former editor recommended to me is the couple we had now. Now I talked with them and confirmed everything, but that was where that came into. That's a great idea. The other thing I've seen you do with them is that you do have a standing call with them every week that forces accountability on their part. It also forces you to think about what direction you can give them. You know, if you have them on contract and they're just you're touching base with them, you know, once a month or once a quarter or something like that, then you can't really ever expect anything to really start to get any traction. You have to set aside the time. You want them to set aside the time just to think about how you might creatively use that interesting resource. A good PR firm, most of them, they want the press hit. That's the juice, man. That's the buzz. That's why they do it. Like getting the hit, you sit there, you work on it, you work on the pitch, you work on the target list and you you do the thing. And then when it hits, that's the fun part, man. You know what I mean? And they like that. And if they're not getting that, the good ones are going to get really frustrated. They don't know what to do. They don't know. They need your help to get that hit. They want to see that happen. That's why they're in the business. 
So weekly one-on-one meetings help. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Awesome. So PR, I think is a great thing for all small businesses to look at. I think that it's uh, if you think of it as a long-term strategy and not something where you're just trying to get something to happen today, but you, you know, you want to plant seeds and you want to grow it like a garden, it can really pay huge dividends for you over time. And maybe, maybe you might be a hero for just a day to your teenage son, if you're lucky. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.